So Jay, here's what gets me about sentinels. Is it that several generations of them were manufactured by means of a giant sentinel who pooped out smaller sentinels? What? Uh, no, I mean, that's awesome. But no, what bugs me is how retro they are. I mean, their design hasn't really changed since the 60s. The X-Men get new costumes every other week, but someone along the line went, killer robots must be pink and bipedal and wear crowns, and half a century of scientists and military marketers just went along with it. That's a little unfair, Miles. But come on, it's 2017, where are the stealth sentinels? The sentinels in updated Matrix-chic color schemes? The hexapedal sentinels that you just can't knock the hell over? Okay, first of all, while the primary sentinel design has in fact remained roughly consistent over the years, we have seen a lot of variations in color schemes, so you can set that one aside. I'll believe it when I see it, or at least hear it described in slightly more detail. Fine, well, Mark V's are blue and silver. The Torch Sentinel is gray and purple with red flame details on the legs, and Stark Sentinels are, predictably enough, red and gold. Will that do? I'll take it, I guess. Okay, so on to design and function. While the bipedal model remains the most popular, I'll give you that. We've seen a ton of sentinel variations, from Nimrod to those weird brine shrimp-looking nano-sentinels. And while it's not comics canon, the Wolverine in the X-Men cartoon had a whole additional range of sentinels, which are both more practical and more closely based on actual military tech. So there's that. Oh, and also, you can't forget the Prime Sentinels. The Prime Sentinels? Sure. They were a model that Bastion introduced, remember, during Operation Zero Tolerance? Um, they were basically these sleeper agent sentinels, so regular people, but with sentinel tech implants that could be activated and then take them over remotely. Well, that sounds familiar. That's probably because one of them ended up joining the X-Men. Oh, uh, Karima Shapandar, right? Wasn't she Sublime's sister or something? No, no, no. She got possessed by Sublime's sister, um, and later Malice. Ouch. How'd she catch Malice? Marauders? Nah, Marauders are last year. She got Malice from an email attachment. What?! I'm Jay Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 163 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to More Marvel Comics Presents. I mean, not that we're super fixated on MCP, but we just sort of got reminded and there were these stories we'd be meaning to do... Also, shout out to everyone who we saw, or will have seen by the time this goes up, at Rose City Comic Con. Thank you for turning out in force for both our party and panel. I'm saying this ahead of time in hopes that it will somehow come true. Yes, I'm sure we all had a wonderful time, and it was lovely to meet slash see you all. Let's do it again next time. Yay! Next time, incidentally, will be New York Comic Con. We've got a panel. It's on Friday. It's going to be our live show, our first one on the East Coast. We have possibly the greatest possible lineup of guests for this. Not going to give it away now, but it's really good. Yes, it's not confirmed until it happens, but oh boy. Yeah, I, I told Miles that we'd, we'd gotten confirmation from everyone who, who I reached out to today, and um, it was pretty funny. I just sort of made some noises. But anyway, um, as for this time, we have some interesting and uh, unexpected stories for you. In two very, very different tones. So you mentioned this week we're back into the pages of Marvel Comics Presents, which, for those of you who missed last week, is an anthology title that ran through a lot of the 80s and 90s from Marvel, featuring mostly stories about Wolverine, 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 and Wolverine. None of the stories we're looking at today involve Wolverine. Right, because we're going to be covering a Colossus story and a Cyclops story that we've had on our list of stuff we might want to cover for seriously, like, a couple of years at this point. 
Yeah, I have no actual idea why we haven't done these, except that they don't really fit very specifically anywhere. So it was sort of a, we'll put them in when we feel like doing them. And this week, we felt like it. That day is today, and we hope you like it. We think we like it. Um, so, Jay, which do you want to start with? Well, we've got two stories that stand alone fairly well, so why don't we just work chronologically? I think uh, the Colossus one came first. Let's go with that. Okay, so the Colossus story is called God's Country, or sometimes it's called American Pie. They kind of forget what the title is in certain installments. Eh, no big deal. I think God's Country sounds cooler. And this one I always wondered about because I'd seen it in trade paperback everywhere. I'd seen it mentioned, and the cover's like really dramatic. It's got Colossus, and there's like a Russian flag or something. And so I feared it would be this epic thing, this journey into the heart of the noble, gentle warrior that is Pyotr Rasputin. And it's, well, it's about Pyotr Rasputin, and it's kind of about Russia. It's kind of salient to modern politics in some ways, sort of, or at least to modern xenophobia. I feel like this episode in general is a very good gear up for the next one. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it kind of is. And part of why this one is so political-ish is that it's written by Anne Nesenti, who you may remember as, number one, longtime editor of The X-Line, and number two, the writer of the Longshot miniseries, one of my favorite comics of all time. As well as one of the longest and best-known runs of Daredevil. Yeah, that too. I still haven't read her Daredevil. I, I really want to. You've read at least some of it. Oh, that's true. There was that, um, what was it, the Inferno tie-in, right? Yeah, and Nascenti is, is the source of the vacuum. And that creepy dentist kind of dude that was also a monster? Wasn't he in that too? Yes. Oh, man. Yes. No, that Daredevil run is phenomenal. It is, it's all of the weird that you're used to from her one-shots, but tempered by the fact that it's a long run and a really good build. It's really, really interesting. She also introduced Typhoid Mary. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting seeing her voice and the themes that she visits in context of that, that larger scale run. Yeah, okay, well, uh, onto the list it goes. Also, John Romita Jr. draws a lot of it. And you know how I've talked about Liefeld butts? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, Romita butts, also a thing. Oh, man. I feel like we could do an entire collage of just all of the most lovingly rendered butts in Marvel Comics, but it would be a really big collage, and, like, Nightwing would be there anyway, even if he's DC. Yeah, that's the thing. You can't really do an all-the-butts collage and not just have it be entirely Nightwing. It's like, you know how gas will, will expand to fill the volume of the container it's in? So will Nightwing's butt? Well, no, night, Nightwing's butts, the, 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 the butt particles, the, the individual particulate butts will, will just reproduce and expand and, and diffuse in order to functionally dominate any conversation about superhero butts. I'm not so sure about the phrase butt particles, but your point is nonetheless well taken. No, no, again, that should have been particulate butts. I phrased it poorly. <laughs> well, the, then. The butt, the butt is the singular unit, the singular particular unit in this, in this particular instance. Jay and Miles, explain the X-Men. Listeners, thanks for being here. Yeah, I can't wait to have to write the copy for this episode. Well, anyway, the point is Anne Nesenti was no stranger to working her politics, which are typically uh, left-wing, slightly ornery politics, into her comics, and this is very emblematic of that trade. Politics in general. One of my favorite stories about her is that there's a daredevil story that has that that she consistently has people write to her or talk to her about how it convinced them to become vegan, which she is not. <laughs> She's influential. Well, as far as art, we have Rick Leonardi. He's sort of been one of the go-to fill-in artists throughout a lot of the X-Men stuff we've been covering in the 80s. I really like his style. It's a little bit cartoony, a little bit exaggerated, and I think it fits a story like this pretty well. I love his Colossus. Yeah, he looks both very, I don't know, very noble and very innocent and very strong simultaneously, like strong in terms of his will and in terms of his big muscles. 
he's like if you found a way to crossbreed Paul Smith and Umberto Ramos's drawings of Colossus. He's he's got that that Ramos sort of dynamism and kind of cartoonishness in in proportion and expression, but the Smith clear lines and the and and cleanness of image and and the expressive face. Yeah, I totally agree. So it's an interesting creative team, and it is an interesting story. It's also a rare one because we don't get Colossus as a focal character very often at all, and I think that's one of the things that excited me most about covering this. It's not exactly the Colossus we're used to, though. And in balance, I think the story still totally works, but it's a strange one. If you're looking for the Colossus from, like, the Claremont Burn Run or whatever, yeah, this is kind of a different guy. This is a more vocal Colossus than we usually see, and it's a more ideologically vocal Colossus than we usually see, which is interesting. I noticed in the in, in your notes you put a lot of stuff about the, the timeline of the breakup of the USSR relative to the publication of this story, which I think it's the same year, right? Uh, yeah, later in 1989, the USSR would indeed break up. The story takes place at the tail end of the Cold War, and for our younger listeners, I guess we should talk a very little bit about what that was. Oh my fucking god. Those children. I know, right? We're really old, it turns out. All my hair's turning gray. Did you get to stay up um, and watch the news when the when the USSR was, was falling down? Like, see things like Yeltsin in front of the tanks? You know, I didn't. I was actually really politically oblivious when I was a kid. Like, I just wasn't aware of what was going on in the world. But I know it was quite the opposite for you, right? Yeah, very much so. I was extremely plugged in. And, like, one of my, some of my more vivid memories of childhood are, are that night and the night the Berlin Wall came down. God, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, those were those were pretty amazing. Seriously. So the Cold War, basically it was a decades-long period of non-direct military but quiet, severe conflict between the USSR and the United States. It lasted roughly from the end of World War II up through the fall of the Soviet Union, although technically I think Glasnost is supposed to have, have officially ended it, but that's... That's actually addressed to some extent here. Um, but the main marker of, of the Cold War was sort of was a perpetual arms race, a lot of mutual antagonism, a lot of weird spying, and a lot of general mistrust of and use of the USSR as the default villains. I think the, the Soviet Union played the same role in fiction and mass media, or a very similar one to the one that, that ISIS now plays. Uh, I think so, yeah. And I mean, there was just so much animosity amid the populations of the various countries because the propaganda machine on either side was huge. And as to what the relative merits and flaws of each side was, I mean, you could talk a lot about that. There are, there are merits, there are flaws to, to both nations at the time. Right now, though, this story is mainly about the conflict between the two and the perceived conflict between the two. I should say, for more explicit discussion of Cold War politics, you might want to check out the episode of the podcast where we talk about Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, where we go into that in, in a good deal of detail, both on a larger scale and in terms of our own perspectives on and experience with that. So when the story was written, 1989, when it came out, like you said, Jay, this was the very end of the Cold War, and the USSR was also about to collapse, but that animosity was still very much there. And that's kind of what we open with as this story opens. We see Colossus in his flesh form, which is kind of weird because this was the period where he couldn't really transform into flesh, but eh, whatever, buying a newspaper from a stand and talking out loud about how he disapproves of all the pornography that's also being sold there. Yeah, it's a little weird. Although it's very believable for Colossus, I could see him being being intensely uncomfortable with porn. I can see that, yeah. And I mean, the line he has here kind of gets his perspective on it across. Why abuse your freedom? Why not respect it for the gift that it is? And I mean, Peter being big on government freedom, that makes sense. He's coming from a nation where there was a lot of social restriction from the government. That's legal restriction, not social restriction. Okay, well, legal restriction of social stuff, I guess, regardless. 
He gets in an argument about, you know, commies with the salesman, and becoming enraged, Organic steals out, and then realizing what he's doing runs the hell away. Here's a question. Do you think Colossus's anti-porn stance has to do with ethical considerations about pornography, prudishness, or the fact that he paints artistic nudes and feels like he has something to prove? I mean, there might be part of that, yeah. So as Colossus leaves this conflict, he ponders, sort of running through the farmland in his fetching trousers tank top and suspenders combo. You know, you say that sarcastically, but it is actually fetching as hell. It is. Leonardi draws a very attractive Colossus. It's also an outfit that I basically wore for like two years in college, although never this well. I mean, to be fair, you're like a third the size of Colossus. I mean, all of us are. Well, and he's a drawing, which helps a lot with how fabric how fabric specifically hangs and interacts with your body. When physics don't have to be part of it, like, you're in good. Fair point. But as he runs, looking very attractive and Leonardi drawn, he's, he wonders whether the U.S. and the USSR really are that different, whether the animosity between the two peoples of the two nations actually makes any sense, and whether he, as a mutant, as an American who is from the USSR, as whatever, is really all that alien. Russia's media is suppressive but America's is exploitative. Both create lies and illusions. Like you said, there's some stuff here that is certainly germane to the present situation in both countries, I think. This kind of reminds me of this old parody article I read. I think it was maybe an RP Gamer or the Gaming Intelligence Agency, but it was Metal Gear Solid just summed up in a bunch of little, like, uh profile pictures and bits of dialogue. And after a certain point, the character Nastasha, who's like a nuclear history in arms uh, expert, her name is just replaced with Hideo Kojima, the writer of the game, and she just starts yelling, nukes are bad, nukes are bad. And I kind of feel like Nascenti is doing that to a degree. I love her writing, but subtle it is not. It's not, but it's not all that partisan in this case either. She does a pretty good job of presenting two ostensibly conflicting ideologies and then sort of stripping down and humanizing the people behind them, which I didn't actually expect after the first the first bit of it, but that definitely happens throughout this. I could see reading it and feeling fairly strongly that it was biased in either direction, depending on which I was reading it for, which is, I think, actually a pretty good mark of good political writing. Agreed. Although this next scene is very much satire of the United States because... Peter's flight away from the porn vendor has led him out into the country where he sees a family. You know, dad, mom, grandpa, a son named Zachary, out picnicking. Wait, did he just run all the way from, like, New York to flyover country? I mean... To get away from porn? <laughs> so fearsome is his uh, vitriol toward pornography that he was able to cross the country in mere minutes. Seriously, where where does this take place? Because I thought it was supposed to be, like, middle middle of the, middle of the country, and I think... I might just have assumed that based on the visual trappings of it. Well, uh, I think actually he wasn't in New York to begin with. He was just in a city. This wasn't the era where the X-Men could just use Gateway to teleport basically anywhere. So, you know, who knows? Maybe he just wanted to check out the Heartland, get some bread from the bread basket. Okay, I'm, I'm imagining Colossus being like, okay, I can go anywhere in the world. Ohio. <laughs> right? I mean, we went to Wisconsin that one time in the middle of nowhere. Okay, I will actually go to bat for Ohio, or at least Columbus, because Columbus has... Among other things, including some of my favorite people, it's got the Billy Ireland Library, which is the largest collection of original comics art in the world. Oh, well, that's actually kind of awesome. It's, it's phenomenal. I know one of the librarians there and got to see the stacks a while ago when I was driving through, which was just, I mean, like, I got to touch Windsor McKay pages oh. with, with little gloves, but still. Um, what I didn't get to see, because you have to request it ahead of time and, and look at it in a locked room, but which they have all of, is the Bill Watterson collection. Oh, man. Well, maybe Colossus decided to go there first, and we just didn't get to see it. 
But right now, he's looking at this incredibly nuclear family, and boy howdy is it ever toxic American masculinity-tacular. Like, mom is talking about how the little boy, Zachary, shouldn't have this gun that he's playing with. Dad's totally cool with it, though. Man's gotta know the grip of a gun as well as he knows that of a woman. I need my gun! I'm hunting crack dealers! Did we mention this was in 1989? But Grandpa tries to talk of the beauty of nature and to chide Dad for the anti-Russia ranting that Dad immediately goes into. I mean, it's just, they're so manly-manly, Dad, and by extension, Zachary. Like, ah, it's satire, yes, but it's not that far away from the real world. Grandpa is mellower, but he and Dad are both paternalistic and possessive of Mom in ways that made me have to figure out which one of them she was married to, which makes me uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I mean, Nicenti is really not holding back as far as her social criticism. So the kid runs off playing and a little bit away from the picnic area, finds three dudes with a fourth dude who is bound to a tree and they're about to kill him. Look, I have never been on a picnic where there wasn't at least one murder. Oh, well, this is no exception then. Yeah, so these guys are doing this in some kind of official capacity and they can't leave witnesses. So as soon as they see Zachary watching, they nab him and they're going to kill him as well. So that's no good. And as we watch this murder from the dudes, one of whom suddenly grows Nosferatu-like giant claws, they're apparently some sort of cyborgs, I guess? You went to Nosferatu and not Lady Deathstrike? Um, Lady Deathstrike's claws are, like, longer and pointier. These were a little, uh, you know, less sharp, less needly. I don't know, I just thought Nosferatu. Yeah, okay. And it makes me think of, uh, what was that Willem Dafoe movie with John Malkovich? Shadow of the Vampire. Shadow of the Vampire. I love that movie. But we digress. The point is... As we're watching this murder scene, we also cut into scenes of this Howard Hughes-looking guy, like wearing all white, in an all-white hospital clean room, being very precise about everything, and rambling about secrecy. Is Colonel Sanders based on Howard Hughes? I've never thought of it until now, but I'm wondering. I'm going to go ahead and say that, yes, Colonel Sanders keeps his fried chicken in one jar and peas in another. P-E-E-S, like the verb, not he keeps his P-E-A-S in another jar, right? No, those are in a third jar. There are three jars. It's good to be precise about these kinds of things. It is. He's like a mummy with, you know, the different vessels for different organs, except different, you know, bodily substances and also very salty food. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. <laughs> Thanks for being here, listeners. So this this dude is doing what elderly gentlemen in positions of significant and nefarious power do in comic books, which is monologuing about it. The power of this government is not in its openness and standards of free press, but in its secrecy. The beauty lies in that Americans think they know what's going on. We must feed the reporters the stories we want them to tell. Create sensational stories to overshadow the real ones. But her emails... <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, okay, to be fair, we obviously have our own political leanings. We've made no secret of that on the podcast. But like you said, Jay, I think if somebody who was farther to the right was reading this, they would just see it very differently than us. Yeah, and one of the great things that Nesenti sets up here is she makes... You know, we, we talked about Zachary and his parents as kind of a parody initially. And they become much less so as they progress. And especially Zachary's dad becomes a gray, but ultimately kind of relatable and sympathetic character in some ways, including specifically his politics and the specific type of patriotism that he that he espouses. Yeah, I mean, at first blush, this is a story about finding common ground between the U.S. and the USSR, but... In a way, I think you could see it as finding common ground between the left and the right. 
I don't think it's even even as as general as that. I think it's common ground between two fairly fairly specific ideologies of of international relations, maybe the xenophobic and international, I don't know. And also just just two different approaches to patriotism and relationship to a nation and to its government. This was a really interesting story for me to read, I gotta say, um, given some family history. Uh, yeah, how so? Well, um, so my, my grandfather was a CIA operative. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, um, which is a whole whole weird other set of stories. He died long before I was born. Um, he was a really, really interesting dude. Did, did not, as far as I know, have souped up techno organic abilities, but did have a pretty fraught relationship with what he did in the context in which he did it. And yeah, like this is the, I think part of what I like about this story is that it's weird and gray and surreal and paranoid in ways that I associate really hard with a lot of the work I've done trying to excavate bits and pieces of his life over the years. Oh, man, there's an entire podcast you could do like about what you found out. I mean, you know, if you wanted to be super public about a private thing, I guess. Oh, that would actually be really interesting. Oh, I I've I mean, my one of my one of my sort of back burner, I'd love to do this as a book project is basically writing something that's simultaneously a biography of him and a memoir of trying to piece this stuff together when so much of his life has been lost or redacted. That would be freaking amazing. I say go for it. We'll see. It would, it would definitely be an interesting project. Well, I guess we'd better focus on this project for the moment. So back at the picnic, Dad sees P Peter sort of moping and looking at them all through the bushes and attacks Peter for spying on the family and also for being Russian. Peter stops him and apologizes, and Mom, feeling bad, invites Peter to join the picnic. And I love Grandpa's line right here. Don't mind him. Bruce is a bit of a racist. Listen to too much of Reagan's boldinky. Yeah, Bruce just loves the old red, white, and blue a little too fiercely. And Colossus and Grandpa bond over their concern about global warming back in 1989. Yeah. So how are the forest fires going? Uh, they're, they've consumed over 10,000 acres in the Oregon-Washington area so far. It's, uh, it's not great. Um, but then the family hears Zachary screaming from nearby, and Colossus meddles up and charges to the rescue. Colossus kicks ass pretty hard, and um, he is opposed to the cyborgs both on, you know, direct grounds that they're, you know, trying to kill a kid, and more general philosophical ones. And he, he objects specifically to the fact that they're, they're augmented, that they are, are not satisfied with, in his words, the limbs God gave them. Wait a minute, Colossus is an atheist. That was like a whole thing in the Nightcrawler's Inferno story in X-Men Annual number four. Also... Why would you ever not want extra limbs? Um, I can tell you why. Because, like in Spider-Man 2, if you get hit in the wrong place, the evil switch will be pressed and your limbs will totally go evil. That's only one model of extra limbs. I'm pretty sure that's common to all of them. Any listeners with prosthetic limbs? Um, I'm right, right? I'm totally right. You gotta be careful because evil switch. That's only if you're a bad engineer, man. Oh, okay. Well, I hope I hope they uh, all of our listeners have had good engineers for their limb, prosthetic limbs. I mean... Has Forearm ever had issue with this? Forearm's limbs aren't prosthetic. They're part of his mutant power. No, they're not. That's true. That is that is a good point. They are technically, if, if you are a theist, I suppose they are the limbs that God gave him. <laughs> yes. God who was not feeling very creative that day. I like the idea of God just giving people limbs, like handing someone a stack of arms and being like, yep, here you go. Yeah, there's that one story with the loaves and fishes and limbs. 
I don't know a lot about religion. No, but I'm no, pretty no, sure. no. You're you're thinking you're thinking that that's a that's a whole different thing, and it gets into Trinitarian philosophy. Um, the question of 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 in what capacity that's God. No, no. The most basic one is the one where Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai and was given um, the Ten Commandments and also the Ten Spare Left Legs. Oh wow, he must have really been booking it through the desert after that. Yeah, he just skittered. <laughs> I love everything about this plan. Well. Anyway, Colossus does successfully beat up all of the weird cyborg spies who run the hell off, and the family takes that as an opportunity to get out of there as well, bringing Peter, their savior at this point, with them. Now, Colossus doesn't think they should go to the cops. He no longer trusts authority figures. They are in the outback phase of the X-Men, which was preceded by the murder in the sewers phase of the X-Men, and he's not feeling real good about authority figures and, and, and police in general right now, so... Oh, and the last cop they encountered, I guess, was a brood, too, so that can't have helped. Well, there you go. But Dad is totally convinced it's going to be fine that the police won't let them down, that his country wouldn't betray him. Grandpa disagrees. <laughs> Sent you to Vietnam, didn't they? And how about all the times you have to fight to get your benefits check? And when they get to the police station, the cops are indeed pretty shady and try to load them into a van, so Peter pushes one of them the hell over and they flee, at which point the cop shoots at them, so I guess that was probably a good call. The cops are so creepy. They're like, get in this van. It's our special van for taking people to another place. I would not really trust them at all. I mean, and they offer candy. It's, it's bad times. So... No, they don't. Oh, well, if they did, it would be even worse. Well... Would it? Maybe? Anyway, Dad insists that the family hole up in their house. They board up the windows. They arm themselves like good Americans. And there's no way the government will come after them, right? I mean, Russia does that, not the U.S. Right. So we should talk a little bit about perceptions of Russia, which was you know, a popular name for the USSR, which actually encompassed a much larger number of countries. And I think one of the main ones was of it as, as a highly, highly authoritarian state. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it was seen as basically being fascist at the time, communist Russia. And certainly there were some elements that were uh, not good in that direction. We should say, if you, are more interest, if you are interested in quick primers on a lot of history, the Weird History Podcast is a great place to get those. We are not historians. We mostly just have sort of an informed layman's perspective on a lot of this stuff, so yeah. It's true. So as the family sets up for a siege, Mom starts to sort of crack. She talks about how she just irons the curtains, and now they're messed up. Irons the curtains. The Iron Curtain, that was the wall of secrecy between the USSR and the US, and Nesenti's really laying on the comparisons hard here. I completely didn't catch that because I hate ironing so much that I was really angry on her behalf at this point. <laughs> well, that's entirely reasonable. Now, outside, the various neighbors of the family start to talk, in part about Grandpa, who's now living in his car, which is plastered inside with old movie stars and World War II memorabilia, living in the past to avoid the present, basically, another bit of commentary. But really, the neighbors are just well, intrigued. No, he's, it's, it's his fort. It's his private space. And I think it's actually super awesome. And I want a weird old car that I can hang out in like that, too, actually. That's really cool. It is cool, it's true, but I also think it's a metaphor intended by Nascenti to describe the ways one can misreact to the march of time. But we know that he is actually engaged. I mean, he's been talking about global warming, he's been talking about international relations. He's not using this to avoid engaging with the present. He's using it as, as self-soothing when the present is unabashedly terrible and there's not much he can do about it. But the story does take a turn at this place in terms of how the family reacts to things, including Grandpa. And he's much less active. He's much less engaged as the story goes on. But who knows? Maybe sometime we'll talk to Nesenti and maybe she remembers. It was a long time ago. Can we talk a little more about the neighbors? Because they stay pretty consistent throughout the story. And they're the part of it that I actually find most disturbing and most resonant. Yeah, totally. They are fascinating. 
Yeah, so they're basically standing on the edge of the property, gossiping through all of it. And they are pretty sure that um, that that Zach's dad is beating Zach's mom. They are exaggerating and coming up with stories. And then they keep on deciding not to intervene, not to call the police, not to talk to anyone because it's private. But that doesn't stop them from standing at the edge of the property and perpetually speculating about this stuff and sometimes outright lying as if either their neighbor's lives are there for their entertainment and projection or as if, you know, these aren't real people quite. And Nascenti's social commentary can get heavy-handed in ways that interrupt stories. Here, it's a great sort of Greek chorus of weirdness that really underlines bystander indifference in some kind of gorgeous ways. Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of the story as well, that it just keeps cutting back to this, like you said, almost Greek chorus of bystanders as the plot continues. So as the plot continues, Dad and Peter continue to argue, and Peter eventually reaches the conclusion that the issue with the U.S. and the USSR isn't so much violently opposed ideals as that each of them has a really good propaganda machine that effectively represents itself and the other. Totally. Uh, what is also represented is violence in the form of bullets that are flying through the yard and into the house. The Cold Warriors, who are the people from before they were identified as such, a rather on-the-nose name. Oh my attack. god, that name. I know, right? And Peter goes out to fight them, and as he does, he captures one of them, a young woman with robot arms, who whispers to him while they're grappling that she's got to talk to the family, and he has to make the fight look convincing and then kidnap her. So Colossus is able to knock her out and bring her inside, and, and she comes to and introduces herself as number six. But not that one, not the one from Battlestar Galactica. Or the one from The Prisoner. It's on my list. Which you still have seen. I finished seen. Twin Peaks. It was kind of mind-blowing, which one would expect. If you spoil it for me. So I am flying to Portland tomorrow, and if you spoil it for me, instead of going to the place where I am staying, I will come and I will... Well, actually, I'll probably just glare at you and maybe cry, but... Yes, listeners, don't make Jay cry. Don't spoil Twin Peaks. I'm not even... Don't, don't spoil Twin Peaks. <laughs> well, number six explains inside that the Cold Warriors are an operation so secret, a government operation so secret that even the CIA forgot that they existed. The job of the Cold Warriors is to fight terrorists in the U.S. Quietly, secretly, very secretly. Number six feels remorse, realizing that she's gone too far, that they've gone too far. She says it's hard to know when you've gone too far for your beliefs until you've already done it. Dad agrees. Easy now. I know what you mean. And I know about sacrificing what's good and gentle about yourself just to be a good soldier. And then he thanks Peter. He thanks Colossus for helping them. Dad is suddenly so much more sympathetic. I mean, he's been a jerk, yes, but now we kind of get a picture of why, and now he starts to understand where that comes from, too. I'm really glad that he met Colossus and not Frank Castle. I'm very glad that anybody who doesn't meet Frank Castle doesn't meet Frank Castle. That's not true. He is very kind to rescued animals. Oh, okay, well, he can hang out with rescued animals and, like, nobody else. Maybe bullet casings. He seems to like those. Occasionally, Daredevil? Like, they get along okay sometimes? Okay, well, it's a pretty short list is the point. But I love this scene. It's people connecting across their ideals, finding common ground. We all have things in common. We all have similar motivations, even if we go in opposite directions because of those motivations. This is what helps us see this other side of any ideological divide as people rather than as concepts. And that's what Nascenti really seems to be concerned with here. Now... What number six is concerned with is stopping Alexander. That's the old Colonel Sanders, Howard Hughes-looking fella, and keeping the family safe. But for the family to stay safe, Alexander has to be taken out. They've got to figure out a way to cut the head off the snake, or it's just going to keep coming back. 
and they have to hold out for five hours because at that point, the press that Number Six has called are going to be there to blow this whole secret wide open, which is what Alexander and the Cold Warriors most fear. So Peter goes off to find Alexander to fight his way through the Cold Warriors to him, and since Number Six doesn't have a name, and since her real name is a secret, he names her Nina, which is kind of charming and adorable. It's a little weird, but okay. I don't know. He really wants to let her be human, to remind her that she is human. And I like that about Peter. And I think that part, as much as he's written strangely in this story, is very much in character. Yeah, agreed. So speaking of humanization, one of the things that dad's been doing is talking about, is, is, is going after mom every time she says something slightly off. And she finally sits down and actually tells Zachary why, that she had a pretty severe breakdown once and that she feels like her husband's paranoia about her having another is actively pushing her in that direction. I'm glad you finally told me the truth. I hate secrets. Go, Zachary. You are the future of an open world and internet. Um, in, in no time, you are going to be sending dick pics to strangers across the Iron Curtain. Huzzah! But there's no time for dick pics now because the robot hand guy suddenly reaches through the wall and grabs mom's face. That's not cool. No. Number six saves mom, but number six herself is injured, which reactivates her programming to kill the family. Dad jumps in and ties up Nina, but he also gags mom while he's at it. Mom is cracking more and more, and dad is just wrapping bandages or something around her face over and over like she's some kind of goddamn mummy. The neighbors outside hear mom's cries suddenly disappear, suddenly become silent, but they won't call the police. This is their private affair. It's none of our business. As they just watch and watch, they justify their inaction also. They figure, Mom could just walk away. I mean, anyone who's being oppressed could just walk away, and it takes two to tango. It's probably her fault, too, right? So, while I recognize that there are cyborgs actively killing people and a dude giving them direct orders, I hate the neighbors more than anyone else in this story. I know, like, people are so good at othering the inconvenient, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're taking in this whole thing as just some kind of a drama to watch without actually acknowledging that the people involved are people. I mean, that's one of the central themes of the story, and the neighbors show exactly how not to do it. I also have some really intense issues with the idea that people in abusive domestic situations can or should just walk away and obviously want to be there if they don't. Seriously, yeah. Now, inside, Nina's begging to be untied. She's back in her right mind. She's overcome the programming glitch. But Dad won't do it. So, Dad tying, gagging and tying up Mom, absolutely not okay. I kind of get where he's coming from, from Nina because she is a souped-up cyborg who was hanging out with people who are trying to kill them and literally just reverted to murder programming for a few minutes. It's fair, but we quickly find out his motivations aren't quite that direct. I have to fight alone. Who are you fighting? I don't know. What are you fighting for? I don't know. I don't care. It's just like Vietnam. Just fight. Don't question why. No clear enemies. I'm used to this. The enemy could be anyone. The freaking Cold War. No, it's not the Cold War. This is a sentiment and this is a nationalistic attitude that extends far, far beyond that. And I think it's a really dangerous fallacy to associate it just with one very specific era of history. This is something you see... Orwell addressing in, in the essay Notes on Nationalism half a century earlier. It's something you see, you know, Daniel Defoe satirizing before that. It's something you see coming up in literally any era, any era that has strong nationalistic propaganda and attached jingoism. This is not specific to the Cold War. And I think we just have to look at 
current events and current discourse to see that it's not specific to the Cold War as well. Yeah, totally valid point. Well, Nina frees herself, and she helps Dad defend against a new round of gunfire that comes, and Grandpa, who is, of course, outside in his car, just gets up and walks past the bullets and walks inside. He hasn't been shot or anything, but he says it's time to go, and he lies down. Just ain't my world anymore, daughter. It's a world of tough guys. They've really screwed things up. And he dies of symbolism, basically, I guess. That's the worst way to go. Seriously. But meanwhile, Peter is in the middle of a big fight, fighting through the various Cold Warriors as he heads toward Alexander's bunker. One of the defeated Cold Warriors begs Peter to kill him, because otherwise they're just going to rebuild the Cold Warrior, replace even more of him with parts from other people or parts from animals. As he says, all parts are replaceable parts. Soldiers here are just tools of the government. They exist to be transformed and unmade, and to have their individuality just become irrelevant. Running parallel to Dad's revelation at the house about, you know, why he's fighting and his lack of purpose, Peter, as he is fighting his way towards Alexander, realizes that he doesn't really understand who he's fighting or why, but he keeps going nonetheless until he finally concludes, I know what I believe. I believe in muscle. Belief hardens into muscle. I'll keep hitting till I figure this out. Oh, Colossus, you've transformed entirely into a metaphor, like the whole movie of The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, this is, this is weird, weird, weird places. Well, Peter does get to Alexander, who washes his hands, both literally and presumably metaphorically, one more time, talking about how Peter and America may think they're fighting for ideals, but the government just uses those ideals for their own aims. Alexander assures Peter that he can tell anyone he wants, the story will never run in the news, and Alexander himself, even if Peter turns him over to the police, will be out within 24 hours, and no one will be the wiser. Back at the house, the cops arrive, and Colossus arrives with Alexander, and the press shows up. And things seem to be okay. Mom and Number Six are telling their stories to the reporters that a government operation was willing to kill American citizens to keep its secrecy. Alexander is taken away, but he tells Peter once again that once he gets his one phone call, that's all he's going to need. None of this will ever be in the papers. No one will ever be the wiser. And Peter's just sad, and also homesick, not for the X-Men, but for Russia itself. Dad asks what's going on and who this Alexander guy that just got taken away was. Peter replies, That was a confused, insane man. At least I hope so. So that is Colossus God's Country. One of the stranger X-Men stories I've probably ever read, but as a fan of Anne Nascenti and as somebody who finds this type of writing fascinating, I really dug it. It's interesting. Um, Nascenti's stuff reads in some ways far more like sort of tone poems or essays than stories at least in terms of the shape, but I like it and it's interesting. And if nothing else, I would say no matter what your politics are, reading Anne Nascenti's stories and especially her X-Men stuff is a great way to start conversations and start thinking about and questioning things. I think her work does one of the things that art can do when it's done well, which is to challenge status quos in ways that don't come with pat answers which is something I always appreciate. Totally agreed. But now, for something completely different, let's talk about Cyclops, the Retribution Affair. Okay, so Cyclops, the Retribution Affair, ran in Marvel Comics Presents number 17 to 24, also in 1989. It came into print shortly after Inferno and immediately before Judgment War. So we're, we're working within that general time frame. 
the only relevant part to what we've been discussing is that this is this is before any of the Shadow King stuff on Muir Island. So Maru McTaggart is not yet evil and sexy. It's true. I mean, she's just normal levels of sexy and I guess normal levels of evil, maybe. She gets mind controlled in this, which is why I'm bringing it up. Legit. This is written by X-Line editor at the time, Bob Harris, and penciled by Ron Lim, who's doing a pretty terrific job. Yeah, Ron Lim is another one of those perpetual fill-in artists who's pretty good. I like his work a lot. It's very house style, but it's quite competently and engagingly executed. Yeah, I, I think his Cyclops is solid. I like the way his, his characters are recognizable. His storytelling is good. His Master Mold is goofy as fuck, which he should be. His Master Mold actually looks a ton like Aaron Stack to me, but I, I don't really know where I'm pulling that from. <laughs> there is that. But this story is very different than Colossus God's Country. It feels very much like a real X-Men story, like something that could have been an arc in the main series. Unlike most Marvel Comics present stuff, God's Country especially, that tends to use non-standard creative teams and non-standard styles or concepts. And like any real X-Men story, it starts with overwrought narration. Muir Island, a bleak bit of rock that rises out of the cold, dark North Sea off the coast of Scotland. A hard, desolate place. It is not for the weak, nor the pleasure-seeking. Today it houses one of the world's most sophisticated genetic laboratories, specializing in seeking the origins of mutations. But in ages past, men came to islands like Muir to seek revelation to find their gods in the buffeting winds and the whipping salt spray. Perhaps that is why, then, that Scott Summers, known to some as the man called Cyclops, has come to this place, to find answers for a life unusually beset by tragedy and pain. Nah. Yeah, no, he's actually just there because Banshee called him. I love it when narration does this, when it just sets something up, and then immediately is like, no, that's not actually it. Sorry, just kidding. Just thought it was a fun hypothetical to play with. <laughs> right? But there's no more time for speculation, because as Scott heads toward Muir, he sees a really pretty explosion, missile, eh, something bad. It's unclear, but whatever it is, he feels the best move is to shoot it down, which he does, destroying both the docks and his own boat in the process. No sooner has he done this than he's set upon by ground-mounted laser cannons. What is this, the Xavier School? It's uh, pretty unprecedented. I mean, Muir's got some defenses, but nothing like this. Yeah, I thought Mir's defenses were basically Jamie Madrox and weather. <laughs> basically, yeah. Um, but no, so Scott manages to take out the guns, but he is distracted by Mora, who apparently sleepwalks out toward the water. And just then he's knocked out by what seems like a sonic scream from Banshee. Except that can't be, can it? No, Banshee lost his powers in Uncanny X-Men number 119, fighting, I want to say, Moses Magnum at the time? Moses Magnum P.I.? And his mandroids. So, good point. A brief recap. Muir Island is the research base and home of Dr. Moira McTaggart, who's the other leading mutant researcher in the world, aside from Charles Xavier. Banshee is a former X-Man who is her boyfriend. They both live here and presumably have a lot of very well-accented hot sex and also do science stuff. Yeah, they are a singular concentration of Claremontian accents. You get Irish and Scottish in one place. There are no uh, G's in anything at any time on your island. Well, Scott wakes up and heads to the lab where Sean, Banshee, and Moira have no memory of the previous night, and the doc apparently is fine. Yeah, they, they take him out to see it, and it's undamaged, and his boat is still there. Moira sticks around outside to watch the sunrise and um, apparently commune with whatever is mind-controlling her, but Cyclops, meanwhile, 
heads back in with Banshee, who who lets him know that he's he's just yeah had been feeling generally uneasy about Mirror Island, and and so called Cyclops and was like, "Come investigate this really dangerous place off Scotland because I feel funny." Okay, so this bugs me, and not just because of the premise. Cyclops knows the X-Men are alive. At this point, the whole world thinks the X-Men are dead, including Moira and Banshee, who freaking was an X-Man. I have theories about this. I don't actually have theories about this. I have, I have creative theories about this, which is that the people working on this comic perpetually forgot that any other characters existed. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Because there are a bunch of people living on Muir Island at this point, and they just don't show up. One of them suddenly reappears like halfway through, but that's it. And she comes out of nowhere, and there's no reason she wasn't in there earlier. And, and so I think, I think this just sort of takes place in a narrative pocket dimension. That may be true, but we do get some more characters, including young Bobby and Mary Campbell, who you know are in big trouble because they get both names and a full introduction. And in Claremont Comics, we know what that means. We also know they're in trouble because the first time we see them, they are suspended in some kind of floating bubble while a possessed Moira looks on, which is a pretty good tip that things aren't quite right. As, as Mora kidnaps neighborhood children, Cyclops and Banshee hang out on the cliffs, being uneasy and catching up on things other than their comrades being alive. Banshee points out that in addition to generally feeling weird about things, he's noticed that Mora has been sleepwalking and possibly also either sleep swimming or sleep levitating since her footprints led out to the water and then disappeared without apparently turning around or moving. Um, this is also where we learn that Shauna and Mora sleep in separate beds or, and this is my actual theory, Banshee is just telling Cyclops that they do. Oh, okay, so the flashback we see, that image is just sort of Banshee's sanitized version because he thinks that young Scott Summers just could not handle the filthy, filthy things they get up to. Yeah, I assume based on relative ages and what we've seen of his relationship to the team, that Banshee basically thinks of the X-Men as like his teenage children. <laughs> I can totally see that. So he's like... Sleeping chastely in our separate beds in full pajamas. <laughs> well, their conversation is interrupted when Moira shows up. She has gotten an emergency call. Young Mary Campbell is critically ill. While Moira sees to Mary, Scott goes to reassure her little brother, who's actually okay despite having been caught in the same weird floating bubble. But Bobby is really scared. Bobby, little brother Bobby, not Bobby Drake, who's not in this story. And, and he tells Scott, The little people did this. The people in the lights. So Bobby talks like Tom Servo pretending to be Trumpy. Yes, exactly. I'm glad you understand. Okay, then. So that night, Scott wakes up and he sees the lights once again. This time he follows Mora as she heads out to the water and sees her disappear into the light. Now, Scott doesn't see where Mora goes, but we, the readers, get a window to where she's gone. She has teleported to some kind of hovership where she is talking to fucking Master Mold. Okay, let's have a brief Master Mold recap here, because it's been a while since we saw that big metal asshole. You know, it's funny you should phrase it that way, because actually Master Mold's main defining feature is that he is a giant sentinel who poops out other sentinels, as I believe we briefly addressed in the cold open. Yeah, I mean, not like literally, literally, but pretty much close enough. He's, he's sitting down on a throne and everything. Well, and the sentinels come out of the back of the throne. So see, there you go. Now, Master Mold was built by eh, one of the Trasks, Bolivar, Larry, I forget, way back when, and was then destroyed by the X-Men a while later, but he rebuilt himself from debris in the ocean and resurfaced to attack Cyclops back in X-Factor number 14. 
While actively hallucinating Professor Xavier, Madeline Pryor, and the Phoenix, Cyclops still managed to take out Master Mold like a punk because Cyclops is the fucking best at fighting Sentinels, and I will go to the mat for that. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree. Cyclops blew up Master Mold. It involved fuel tanks. It was actually a pretty great issue. But now, Master Mold is back! In Pog form! And this time, he's a little different because he's also kind of a different asshole, a guy named Stephen Lang. Oh, shit, that guy. So, back in history again, do you remember Stephen Lang listeners? Stephen Lang built X-Sentinels, which were Sentinels that looked like X-Men, and he basically jump-started the entire Phoenix saga by being a dick. Now, he was killed in space back in the climactic Uncanny X-Men number 100, but now he's also half of Master Mold. The two have been merged, and they've apparently made Moira McTaggart come up with an anti-mutant virus. Also... And somewhat appropriately, Master Mold has a super mad on for Scott because Scott keeps killing him. Right. In self-defense. Mm-hmm. Now, Master Mold has some kind of a sidekick we haven't seen yet called Conscience. We'll get to that later. And not only that, but apparently she either was already telekinetic or has suddenly developed telekinesis, and her powers are abruptly out of control as some kind of manifestation of her illness. She also keeps yelling about the little people like her brother did. Okay. Now, she's not the only one in trouble at this point, because Cyclops rushes in with an unconscious Banshee. Banshee has fallen ill of the same virus that took down Mary. And Master Mold heads off to claim these various victims so that Moira can continue to study them or something. And that's when we find out who those little people that the Campbell kids keep talking about are. Because Master Mold sends Moira... And along with her, he sends his quote-unquote servitors, who I swear to God are an army of weird little naked alien robots. Right? What the hell? Like, they're weird little humanoid alien things that are maybe like waist height and have huge heads and gray eyes and they're like beige and wrinkly and they look like weird little naked people and they're robots. They remind me of moloids. I kind of wish they were. Or, oh, better yet, Cassidy Keep isn't far away. They could also be leprechauns from Cassidy Keep. But they're not, unfortunately. They are way too naked to be leprechauns. Leprechauns can be naked. Those clothes come off. I, I assume. We've never seen evidence to that effect. I've never seen a leprechaun either way, naked or clothed. No, no, but within, within the frame of evidence we have to work with with regards to Marvel canon. I don't think we've seen naked leprechauns. Okay, we have... I may be mistaken. If I am, I will I will grudgingly accept the inevitable um actuallys with naked leprechaun pictures. Please don't send me naked leprechaun pictures otherwise. That that would make me tremendously uncomfortable. Please don't send me naked leprechaun pictures. The Jay Edidin story. The things I have to specify. You know what our, our listeners do send that I love? They're like an early alert system for any news story involving weird lobsters. Oh, yeah, there was another one recently with, like, some kind of a transparent kind of mutant lobster. Right? And I got so many, like, emails and tweets that were like, Bill and Don, Bill and Don, and it was so good, and it made me really happy. Fallen angels, you shall live on forever. They are also a well-honed early alert system for any canonical appearances of Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau, which I also deeply, deeply appreciate. You're beautiful people, listeners. We love you, listeners. Well, anyway, apparently the bright lights we saw before were some kind of probes because they show up and emit a high-frequency something or other that knocks everybody the hell out. And then this leaves Moira and her servitors free to go get Banshee and Mary Campbell, except that Scott wakes up early and is understandably alarmed by this deeply fucking bizarre turn of events. And he manages to fight off of the non-naked leprechauns or whatever they are and grab Moira McTaggart, who finally snaps out of it, 
and tells him that she's killed them all. Uh, well, she says you all, and presumably is referring to mutants whom we've figured out by this point are the only people currently susceptible to what will become known as the retribution of Iris. Speaking of mutants, the servitors head home with their quarry, Banshee and Mary, who are in life support tubes, which I will admit is a very Stephen Lang aesthetic. And we also meet the aforementioned Conscience, the assistant or whatever of the Master Mold. Yeah, so Conscience is a weird robot Pope-looking dude with a perpetually grinning, stapled-on face and sassy repartee who looks like he comes from a combination of the brain of Mobius and the Mojoverse. God, he totally does. And we'll, quick, we'll quickly find out that Conscience is based off Stephen Lang, and sure enough, Conscience looks a hell of a lot like the resurrected Phalanx Stephen Lang that'll show up years later in the Phalanx Covenant storyline. Also, he's really bad at his job. He is a completely shitty conscience. He's totally down with mind control and genocide, which you'd think might be issues. Do you think that's like really big dudes who are nicknamed Tiny? Like it's ironic? I have no idea. I don't think that Stephen Lang entirely grasps the concept of irony, and I'm fairly certain that Master Mold doesn't. Well, back on Muir Island, Moira is working feverishly to try to find a cure for the virus that she apparently was forced to make. Scott is desperately trying to contact the mainland, but there's a storm which is also trapping them on the island, and also suddenly Callisto is there, because despite being Moira's bodyguard and living on Muir Island in the research facility, she just sort of hasn't been around for the previous several chapters. So my take on that is that she was spending all that time working on her amazing outfit, which has like these leggings with these Kirby-esque holes in the sides, this really huge collar that gives her amazing cleavage, but also her midriff is exposed and it's all purple and black and spiky and spangly. It's way more femme than Callista usually goes, but I will give her points for the fact that she definitely looks like she's about to go on tour with Lila Cheney. And that's always important. But then Cyclops collapses because apparently the virus is really contagious and dude's got it. Uh, Callisto takes advantage of her presence by dropping a brief red herring implying that Legion is responsible, which he is not. Right, he's really not mentioned or seen in this story at all. Scott, Mora, and Callisto have a brief guilt off, which is interrupted when the servitors arrive, now flying, and accompanied by Conscience, who declares, All right, kitties, let's party. This is a terrible party. Master Mold is supervising the invasion from his headquarters, and his, his orders are that Mora is to be retrieved intact, but Scott should definitely be killed as definitively as possible. Um, and Conscience is embracing his role in this, and speaking mostly in idioms and sort of cultural references, kind of. Now, onward, Christian soldiers. Or would the halls of Montezuma be more appropriate? I've never led an invasion before. Decisions, decisions. He's, he's very Mojoverse-y, as, as is his aesthetic, and particularly his unchanging rictus grin. Totally, yeah. Well, Cyclops, Moira McTaggart, and Callisto do manage to hold off the invasion for a bit until... Cyclops' powers fade out as a side effect of the virus, and the three of them are immediately captured by Conscience and company. Master Mold is annoyed that Cyclops and Callisto are still alive, but Conscience reassures him that, hey, they're going to die anyway because of the virus, and this way they get to stick around and watch the rest of the mutants get eradicated by these things called death spores, which sounds pretty metal, I gotta say. Yes, but the best thing about finally having Conscience embodied in the comic is that everyone keeps telling him to shut up, and they always say his name when they do. So it's like, shut up, Conscience! Shut up, Conscience! And it would be worrisome if they were like actually talking to their consciences, but it's usually after he says something that's either goofy and unrelated or pro-genocide. So yeah, shut up, Conscience. Well, speaking of Conscience not shutting up, 
Cyclops tries to fight, but his powers are fading out, he's not in good shape, and that means it's time for Conscience's origin story. So, what's Conscience's deal? Let's let the man tell it in his own words. My origin? At last someone asked. I am a sentinel, built by Mastermold with his own brain engrams to ease his loneliness. Of course, his engrams are based on those of Stephen Lang's. So, long story short, Mastermold got the logic and planning parts of Lang's brain, and Conscience got the feelings and the pop culture references. That may be straightforward, but the story itself isn't, because back on Muir Island, the very human Bobby Campbell, you know, the little boy, the brother, he comes down with a virus. It was supposed to be just a mutant virus, and this kid's human. And at this point, Conscience finally lives up to his name and has a couple qualms. He wants mutants gone, but not at the cost of humanity. Mastermold! like, nah, bro, it's cool. So the virus is going to kill 100% of mutants, but it's only going to take out 92.4% of humanity. So we're all good. Some of humanity is going to survive. It's cool. I gotta say, in X-Men, historically, the Sentinels are very good at justifying killing humans. Yeah, no, the Sentinels are basically rationalization engines, which in this case is actually fairly well narratively ra rationalized, considering the parts of Lang's mind that Master Mold got. Conscience doesn't buy it because conscience is made of feelings and idioms and he goes off to reluctantly team up with moira scott and callisto to hopefully stop master mold from committing extra genocide so moira agrees to help conscience take down master mold but she's got a condition she's only going to do it if conscience takes them to the genetics lab so that they come up, can come up with a cure for the disease because it's already out there it's already killing mutants they don't know yet that it started to infect humans and Conscience goes for it. Moira works in the lab while Callisto, Cyclops, and Conscience head to the spore chamber to destroy the death spores. Unfortunately, on the way, they're caught by Master Mold and his little naked leprechauns. Non-naked leprechauns. Non-naked non-leprechauns. Servitors. Yeah, those guys. Fortunately, Conscience has lasers. Unfortunately, Master Mold has bigger lasers and blows Conscience half the hell up. And Cyclops and Callisto are both infected with the retribution virus at the, this point, so they're in pretty lousy shape. They don't have a lot of fight left in them. Fortunately, kind of, uh, the last stage of the virus, as we saw with uh, Mary Campbell, includes power flares. So Cyclops is briefly able to access his optic blasts um, and at least get free from Master Mold. And Conscience is also still okay-ish, because Sentinels are, you know, tough. They're made of metal and stuff. And Conscience manages to revive Scott. Well, or at least wake him back up briefly. And Scott is in his element. Because remember, okay, there are two things that Scott Summers is best at. Okay. They are repression and killing Master Mold. He's also really good at playing pool. Don't forget that. Oh, yeah, he is. He's amazing at pool. Three things. He's really good Three. at two things. Three. <laughs> Three. That's good. No, he's, 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 he's got some things going. He tries. He tries real hard. But he, he is definitely the best at taking out Sentinels. And he points out to Conscience... That in theory, he and Master Mold are based on similar programming, and, and Conscience should be able to just straight up overwrite Master Mold's mind, almost like a virus. That's actually a really smart solution to this problem. Again, Scott is the best at taking down Sentinels. The last time he fought Master Mold, arguably the largest and most powerful Sentinel in existence, he did it by himself in a civilian population with a minimum of collateral damage. In X-Men First Class, he took out a Sentinel with no powers by weaponizing the Danger Room. I really love Cyclops. I know we talk about that a lot on this show, but I really love Cyclops. No, he's fantastic, and that's the thing. He is 
super, super, super badass. It's just that he's a tactical badass, so it's generally not as showy. It's true. Well, who is also a badass is Moira McTaggart, because she realizes, as she does her research to try to figure out how to unvirus the virus, that she was kind of resisting the mind control earlier in the story and left clues for herself to see later that would allow her to come up with a cure for the virus. So she does that. Yeah, so that's cool. Conscience, meanwhile, successfully starts to take over Master Mold, but the virus, the computer virus, was too unstable and it jumped into Master Mold's mind too fast, so they're dying and Master Mold is kind of able to wrench back control and prepare to release the death spores. Cyclops manages to prevent Master Mold from releasing the spores uh, until his powers drop out again and he, he falls down apparently dead. But it's okay because Moira and Banshee are here to the rescue. And Banshee has his powers back, despite them getting Moses Magnumed back in the day. Maybe it's only temporary, but I gotta say this does nicely time-wise presage Banshee's involvement in the Muir Island era X-Men, where he had those powers. But unfortunately... While Master Mold has been stopped, at least temporarily, from releasing the virus, the ship is still full of it. It is, it is, it is just a little death spore incubator. And Conscience says, okay, well, that's cool. I'm going to take the ship really far away. I'm going to blow it up with me on it. That's fine. I got this. Cyclops questions this decision. Why, Conscience? Your mind is Stephen Lang's, and his hatred knew no bounds. But you... Oh, but my mind is only based on Lang's. It was my template. I was built to appreciate the wonders of mankind. Art, literature, music. I loved what man could be at his best. And in the end, I guess I bettered myself. Isn't that what being human is all about? It feels like such an unrealized setup that no one has made any parallels to evolution and mutation here. Because I feel like the X-Men always jump right on those analogies, and they don't, and it's... And, and, and I feel like I've just been left dangling, and it's, it's an uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, because conscience has straight-up evolved, like a mutant. But it all works out, at least for all the non-robotic people, because everyone hangs out on Mirror Island, all the heroes, and they watch the ship self-destruct, taking the death spores with it. The end. Okay, so, elephant in the room, the retribution virus, it's totally the legacy virus, right? Well, based on the order in which they appeared, I would argue that the legacy virus is totally the retribution virus. Yeah, as a reminder to anyone unfamiliar, the legacy virus was going to be a big deal after the Extinction Agenda storyline later in the 90s. It was a virus that targeted a bunch of mutants and then spread to humans, and Moira McTaggart worked on it. And the retribution thing is never mentioned, even though Moira was right the hell there. That's something that happens a lot, where you have a story that's a side story or a one-off or not a major event, or just something that isn't part of the incoming writer's frame of reference and sort of gets glossed aside. That happens a ton in shared universe comics. And yeah, this is a weird one, though, because this so precisely predicts the legacy virus. It's, it's an odd thing. I do really like this story, though. It's fun. Yeah, I really like it too, and that's one of the reasons I wish people hadn't forgotten it existed. But now you, gentle listeners, if you didn't already know about it, you do. And you can track it down. I mean, maybe. Uh, I don't think it's on Marvel Unlimited, so it might be kind of hard to find. But if you can, it's pretty great. It's pretty easy to find the issues of Marvel Comics Presents that it's in. I think I've actually found them all in, in dollar bins over or, or quarter bins over the last couple of years entirely by accident. So, Oh, nice. Well, that's what we have for you story-wise, but you have some things for us. You've got questions. Carol Danvers GF asks on Tumblr, Hi Jay, hi Miles. In the last episode, 160, there was something about a gal pal squad that was mentioned. My immediate thought was, who would be in Kitty Pride's gal pal squad? You know, besides Rachel and Magic. 
What do you guys think? Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the idiom, gal pal in modern entertainment news and lexicon is a phrase used to dismiss romantic relationships between women. So I'm going to go ahead and say literally every female character ever because no one is queerer than Kitty Pride. Right? Um, no, actually, seriously, definitely Rachel and Magic. Um, also, Karma, Mirage, and I don't know if Courtney Ross would actually be in the Galapal squad or if she'd just like be funding it, but she'd definitely be involved in some capacity. Well, similarly, I feel like it would be quasi-incestuous to have Storm be a part of it, but I also feel like she kind of has to be a part of it. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think Storm is their mentor, or maybe she's, ah, oh, shit, I can't make this reference. It's way too oblique, and it's way too involved, but basically, you should all watch Kamikaze Girls because it's a great movie. Oh, yeah, you totally should. All right, Records of Me asks on Tumblr, is there a universe in which Magneto is a mutant rights community organizer? Is there a version in which he'd be good at that, or is being dramatic with a cape required characterization? I can see him caped up on the street with a cape and a clipboard, but it's a hilarious image. Okay. So, in the Marvel database, uh, they have a section for alternate universe versions of characters, and Magneto's is seriously, like, as long as the Wikipedia entry on My Little Pony, but I dug as well as I could. Not exactly. There are a couple that were sort of similar. In Ruins by Warren Ellis, which is sort of a dark parody of Kurt Busiek's Marvels, uh, Magneto's seen protesting the corrupt President Xavier, like, you know, picket sign and all that, but he dies horribly when his powers malfunction, so maybe that doesn't count. It, that, why would that not count? Because he's only there for, like, a second. We don't really get any of the details of whether he's a community organizer, whether he had a clipboard at all. I don't know. Okay, okay, fair. Well, and then there was also a 2004 miniseries called Powerless, where it's like the Marvel Universe, but nobody's got powers. And that, he's a corrupt senator, which I guess is kind of organizing the community, but probably also doesn't count, so... No, 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 absolutely not. I mean, you know, they're like two sides of the same talking to people about issues coin. Arguably, that's a role he takes on somewhat in the most recent Magneto solo series on Genosha, but that's mostly in context of his role as the former leader of that nation, so I, I don't know if you can really extrapolate ground-level community organization from that. Well, either way, to take a somewhat silly question a little bit more seriously, for me, I don't think Magneto really needs the flamboyance to have gravitas. I mean, look at the Magneto in X-Men First Class, for instance. He's not really flamboyant at all, but he's incredibly compelling. I think he does need to be quite imposing, though, even if that's a positive and constructive kind of imposing, which, you know, might befit a community organizer. I'd imagine he'd be very, very good at getting signatures on the street, at the very least. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional entities and characters. So let's turn it over to everybody's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. Your plan was airtight, Justin Harwood. All the pieces in place and every contingency accounted for. But the only thing you didn't count on was Bob Yule. How does it feel to be betrayed from within, Justin? Do you think it was a mistake splitting your brain between the two of you? And I can turn it over to someone now possibly better qualified to answer that question. The one, the only, the revived and reborn and repeatedly killed, Master Mold. I have purged all emotion from the engrams of Stephen Lang, placing them safely in my cyborg counterpart, Conscience. This is a logical, if annoying, arrangement. But still, I find myself struggling with distraction. Perhaps I should embody my amateur slam poet aspirations as Amanda, 
and my love of Great British Bake Off fanfiction as Steve. Then shall Master Mold truly achieve a purity of focus, and the mutant race shall be destroyed! Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and it's produced by Kurt Lloyd, host of the fun and funny comic book cover story, which you can find on YouTube. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for additional content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, tune in for the episode we've recorded live at Rose City Comic Con. We're gonna get political. Political.